This is the next generation of talk radio. You're listening to the Blaze Radio Network on demand. Listen live at theblaze.com slash radio. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Good Saturday morning to you. I am Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. We've got a big show for you this morning. We have an incredibly important follow-up to a story we gave you a few months ago. It's it's important. It is important. The record needs to be corrected. It's a story involving Score Strip Club. We're going to get to that in the last hour today. We have a little celebrity guest, serious radio host Pete Dominic joining us because we have some very serious... I guess they're bro questions, but they are very serious, debatable issues over bathroom etiquette. What exactly, where exactly are you supposed to do in the bathroom? Now, of course, I'm not, I don't mean, you know, like functionally. Oh, you're going to get in so much trouble during the segment. I can already tell. You know what I mean. Like, no, what, what, they don't know what you mean. What urinal do you go to? Do you sidle up next to the guy next to you? Do you leave an empty one? There's a like, ton of important questions. Oh, like questions. social etiquette of being a dude in a dude's bathroom. Correct. That sounds like a perfect game of bros. <laughs> but first, this morning, the earthquake in political news was that Eric Cantor lost. House Majority Leader Eric Cantor lost his congressional race, the primary in his congressional race, to independent Dave Bratt. I say independent. He ran, of course, on the Republican ticket. I say independent because Dave Bratt really had no backing from any formal organization known as the Tea Party. He couldn't, Essie, he couldn't get return calls, apparently, from national Tea Party organizations. And the question we're asking, and the question I will ask you listening at home, is why did Eric Cantor lose? What is the story here? Well, that's what everyone's trying to figure out. And if you saw the coverage this week, you saw pundits taking very broad, like, swipes at that question, trying to figure out exactly what happened to Eric Cantor. Because honestly, like the day before, no one in Republican circles, in Democratic circles, in the media, on the Hill, saw this coming. No one. Not only did no one in the media see this coming, Eric Cantor himself didn't see this coming. Right. He had $5 million in the war chest left, a million and a half unspent. He had internal polling that that showed he was doing all right, polling that turned out to be wrong. Yeah, suggested he was going to win by something like 20 points. I mean, this is, I don't know, this is is Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson. This is something that that you need to know. Who are those people? That's not a... Who's Buster Douglas? That's fake. That's not a real person. It's not acceptable for you not to know that reference. I think it's totally acceptable. (laughs) This is a major upset. Some have said it's the biggest political upset, I don't know, in decades. Well, in certainly for, for leader. Um, no one, no other leader has been unseated in, in this manner. Uh, it, it is historic. It, it's shocking. Eric Cantor was seen as very safe. It's a safe Republican district, uh, District 7 in Virginia. Uh, if Dave Bratt does everything right, he should beat his Democratic opponent. We'll get to Dave Bratt in a minute, but let's let's stick with with what happened to Cantor. Well, let me ask those at home real quick. Give us a call. Tell us, why did Eric Cantor lose? 888-900-3393. 
What's the story here? Yeah, because I think people, yeah, people have their own ideas. I mean, people are familiar with Cantor. You know, Glenn talks about Eric Cantor a lot. Talk radio made Eric Cantor an enemy for the past, you know, enemy number one for the past few months, uh, even up to a year. Over a number of issues, he was seen as too cozy with Boehner. He was seen as capitulatory, um, conciliatory, and not standing up for Tea Party conservative values. Throwing out a $5 words there? If you can't keep up, that's not my fault. That's not my fault. Um, Conciliatory, compensatory. Those are... (laughs) And then not standing up. I didn't say. I I was waiting for some, some culmination of... Fancy words. Okay. He was seen as too, um, let's see, compromising. Does that work? Mm. Yep. Now, a lot of people looked at that race um, and suggested from the get-go that this was over a single issue. Dave Brett won because of immigration. Dave Brett won because he is Tea Party and it's an anti-establishment win. Is that your counter or no, is that I'm your suggesting, agreement? No, I'm, I'm building up on what you said. You're exactly right. People wanted to layer on this singular reasons or national narratives as to why Dave Bratt won. They have, we, we have heard it is an anti-establishment victory. It is an immigration reform or anti-immigration reform victory. We've heard these many reasons given. Right. Um, yeah. And, and that, that Eric Cantor ignored his district at home. Um, that Eric Cantor was too busy in his role as leader focusing on national politics and not local politics. There's a lot of there was a lot of speculation. And, and frankly, I'm not sure that you can pin it on just one thing. Um, I don't think this was just over immigration. If you look uh, at, at other districts at other states, you know, Lindsey Graham was in a similar position. He won his race. Um Eric Cantor has been categorized as pro-amnesty. I think that's a little uh, too easy, a classification uh, of his position. And and frankly, the folks in his district are in favor of immigration reform. The people in his district, even Republicans in his district, are in favor of immigration reform. So I don't think that's why they sent Dave Bratt uh, to the House, and neither does Dave Bratt. Dave Bratt has discussed this, and he said, "You know, that's one of that's one of the things that I've talked about." But I've I've talked about a whole host of other things, so I don't think that's the easy answer. I also don't think the easy answer is that Eric Cantor is establishment, and Dave Bratt is not establishment. Um, you've seen a lot of establishment folks handily winning their primaries this season. And while there is an anti-establishment attitude all over the country, and you see that on the left as well, I don't think that's what happened here. I think what happened here is that Eric Cantor, Dick Lugard, this campaign. He Dick Lugard it. He waited too long to take it seriously. He didn't invest enough real time, FaceTime, not money, because he spent a lot of money, but FaceTime in this campaign. And I think he took for granted that his seat was safe until it was too late. And so the people back in his district, the people who turn out for primary elections on the Republican side in a midterm election, are not the people who are inclined to just vote the last guy in. 
And I think I think he forgot about that. Now, the question is whether Eric Cantor, not only Dick Lugard, but will Dave Bratt, Richard Murdoch, this election? <laughs> okay, before you turn everybody's <laughs> proper name into a verb. Um, everybody knows what I'm talking about. The uh, I disagree with you to some small extent. I think this is an anti-establishment victory. I don't think it's neat and clean in that it's Tea Party versus establishment yeah. because, as I said— uh, Dave Bratt couldn't get any national endorsements from Tea Party organizations. He couldn't get any support from Freedom Works or um, a return call from Ginny Beth Martin at Tea Party uh, Patriots. Patriots, yeah. Um, no, it's something, but it's something akin to an anti-establishment victory, and it has to do with Eric Cantor becoming the symbol, the vision of Washington D.C. You're right; he lost this because he didn't do shoe leather politics, we can call it, similar to police work. He didn't go door-to-door the way Dave Bratt did. He didn't get to know or maintain relationships with his constituents. In fact, he did the opposite. He became removed, both physically and symbolically. He was in Washington, D.C. He symbolized Washington, D.C. And with that, many, many of the negative things that go along with that. Dave Bratt came off as authentic. This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what I stand up for. And even when Eric Cantor was <clears throat> giving voice to conservative values or conservative principles, it always seemed like it was pivoting away from something he had said in the past or something he had done in the past. Now, what does Eric Cantor really believe? Where are his principles? He may be a very principled conservative, but in the end, it ended up looking manufactured. It ended up looking unreal. And he paid the price for that because that's what everybody sees when they look at Washington, D.C. You're telling me what I want to hear, but you didn't tell me that six months ago. You didn't do that a year ago. And in all those ways, Eric Cantor became Washington, D.C. And therefore, he was prime for rejection. I think that's a separate point, and it's, it's another criticism. It's another criticism that Eric Cantor said one thing at home and a different thing in the district and maybe changed his opinions a bit. I think the criticism that you offered that's valid is that he wasn't he he wasn't taking his district seriously enough. But let me just say in Eric Cantor's defense, because I know Eric Cantor Eric Cantor, and I've had the honor of working with him on a number of issues, he was focused on national politics because he was leader. He was majority leader. I'm sorry, minority leader. And part of that job was to expand the party. That was his job. And in the capacities that I met with him, it was in the interest of expanding the party to women voters, younger voters, middle class voters. That was interesting to him. That was a project of his that I don't think Republicans should throw out the window. That's an important project. And unfortunately, he took that on at the expense of his constituents. And ideally, he would have paid attention to both. But it's not like Eric Cantor was in Washington promoting Eric Cantor. No, listen, um, Eric Cantor was good on many issues. You know, school choice is a very important issue for me. Eric Cantor was not just good on that. He was one of the best on school choice. But ultimately, in the end, no matter what you want to do in national politics, no matter what position you want to have or do have in leadership, you are accountable to the people that put you into that office. And that's those people in the 7th District of Virginia. The question then becomes... Is Dave Bratt ready to take that role? Now, I think you and I might debate exactly what role Dave Bratt is going to take. Yeah. And is he ready for it? Let's talk about that when we come back. And I want to hear from you 
Why did Eric Cantor lose? 888-900-3393. When we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. I might be sleepy still, but why is Essie Cup using big words today? Will Kane, please dumb it down for me. This is Chris in California on Twitter. No, that's no problem. Will will happily dumb it down for you. (laughs) (laughs) Essie Cup totally lost me on those references, unlike Will Kane's spot on Buster Douglas Tyson reference. That's Jonas Miller on Twitter. Let me tell you, something would be wrong with me as a woman. If I had any idea who Buster Douglas was, I barely know who Mike Tyson is. Yeah. I, don't know. I think something would, would be wrong. I'm embarrassed for you. <laughs> Bruce Weinman on Twitter. Like Palin, Dave, Pratt, Dave Bratt presented himself as the man next door. He has yet to prove he will do what he said. I like that tweet because it means you don't overinvest in the words these men sell you. You don't overinvest in the cult of personality. You wait wait and see. Will they do what they say? Is Dave Bratt ready for prime time? Yeah. um, For me, the short answer is no. He is not ready for prime time today. The longer answer is I think he's got all of the tools to get ready for uh, for his general election and and to win. It's a comfortable seat, as I said. Also, you know, he's going to get staffed. He's going to get a, a great team around him who's going to help him help him out. Like this is a real like this is a real race now because it is. But um, gosh, if you listen to him in the day, the days after his win. Uh, no, he does not sound ready. Let's let's uh, let's share some evidence. Let's play clip one. Should there be a minimum wage, in your opinion? Um, I, 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 I don't have a well-crafted response on, on that one. All I know is if you take the long-run graph over 200 years of the wage rate, it, it cannot differ from your nation's productivity, right? So you can't make up wage rates, right? I would love for everyone in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, or children of God, to make $100 an hour. Right, I would love to just assert that that would be the case, but you can't assert that unless you raise their productivity, and then the way follows. We, we, you know, the it sounds like you're making a case against. You can mandate you. To- so it sounds like you're making a case against a federal mandated minimum wage. Um, I'm, I'm just making the case I just made, which is that you cannot artificially make up wage rates. Right. They have to relate to productivity. Economics professor. To not have a ready answer on your position on raising the minimum wage, which is not like, what do you think of the politics in Ivory Coast? This is a this is a debate we've been having. This is a debate that's on the table. I just think is is grossly underprepared. I I don't mind his answer whatsoever. What I saw was perhaps an unprepared politician, but not an unprepared economics professor. His 
his concept that wages should follow productivity is spot on. He's just af- honestly, he's just afraid to say right there that there shouldn't be a federal minimum wage because he knows he could potentially pay the political p- price. That's an unprepared politician. Agreed. You know what? He's trying to be a politician. Well, he's not That's trying right. to be a professor. That's right. So he, he, we need to hold him to that standard. I, I like his. Well, I like his answer in a classroom. Right. He's not in a classroom. But here's the deal, I see. You keep asking, is he, and I, I presented the question, I know it's one you're asking, is he ready for prime time? He doesn't have to be majority leader. He doesn't have to take Eric right. Cantor's position. He has to be a congressman from the 7th District. The question is, is an unpolished politician in, un, unready for that question okay for the 7th okay, District Okay, well, of how about this question? How about this question? P- play clip number two, please. Hey, Chuck, I thought we were just going to chat today about the cel- celebratory aspect. I'd love to go through all this, but my mind is just, uh, I didn't get No, I understand that, but in, I just want to get <laughs> a sense I, I of... I all the policy questions. I'm happy to do more, but I, I just wanted to talk about the, uh, the uh, victory we had, and I wanted to thank everybody. That was he was asked about Syria and whether we should arm the rebels. And, and chances are Dave Bratt's not going to be in a position to have to make that decision. But I'm sorry, you were you just won. I don't know if you were fake running, but you just won. You uh-huh. just won, and it's it's not the kind of it's not the kind of thing that you you can you can learn your opinions on these very important issues on the job. Now, like I said, he'll get a team around him. They will work on his polish. He will get prepared. He's a smart enough guy. I think he can get there. But as of today, he does not sound ready. Bruce in Wisconsin, um, do you think he sounds unready? No, I don't. I think that the, the population is tired of listening to politicians who are, are the best practiced storytellers in the United States. I think that he falls in the category with Sarah Palin, who in fact did what she said and said what she did. People are looking for the person next door who they can trust the individual that the founders had set up as the persons who should run this country. You know, Bruce, I don't disagree. The problem is this isn't a guy who came out and said, here's my opinion on the issue. I'm going to tell it to you straight. He said, I'm not, I don't have an opinion yet. I don't have an opinion yet. You know, I'm happy to talk policy, but not today. Today I want to celebrate my win. I don't have a policy answer for you on that. To some extent, that's honesty. To some extent, that's not BSing your way through a... You can... I, I mean, uh, look, I, I, I like the populist argument. I like the guy next door argument. I was a big Sarah Palin fan. This is sounding a little like far-reaching spin. No, to, say, to say to a person, I don't have an answer. I haven't crafted a policy answer on that yet. I think I don't know is a perfectly good answer sometimes. Midstream I, I think we need to hold our elected officials or would-be elected officials up to a, a greater standard, just a slightly greater standard then I don't know. I don't know. I like that humility, Bruce. Uh, I agree. The midstream media will take every opportunity to discredit him. That's why they're still scared to death of Sarah Palin. They still don't let up on her because she, she in fact, took the largest corporations in the world and told them either you drill or you can go pound sand. I'll see you in court. Well, I'm not afraid of Sarah Palin, nor no. am I afraid well, of Dave Brad. I want are Dave you Brad. part of the mainstream media? Well, I think Are I'm part of the part mainstream of media. I have a show on CNN, CBS, but but the word salad group of uh, of individuals that is is basically the propaganda machine in this country. Well, listen, Bruce. I thank you for your call, but but listen, I, I don't think we need to generalize here. I think it's completely valid to take on a candidate who says I don't know to a number of policy questions and ask, "Is he ready?" All right, let's keep debating this. I'll tell you what. Let's take a few more calls and keep debating this between you and me as well. 
um, on Canaan Cup when we come back. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Esty Cup. And I'm Will Kane. We're talking about Dave Bratt. I realize he's got a lot of fans. That's wonderful. I am also pulling for him. But let's all be honest with each other because we're friends. We're friends here. Let's be honest with each other and ask some hard questions of the people we are trying to send to Washington. Is Dave Bratt ready? Now, I will say it again because I guess my words get lost over the airwaves. I will say it again. I think Dave Bratt can get ready in time for his general election. He is a smart guy, and I think he's a, he's a thoughtful guy. But if you were asking me today, is he ready, the clear answer is no. You cannot say, I'm just calling in Chuck Todd to talk about my win. Won't you celebrate with me? And not to answer serious policy questions and expect to be taken seriously. That is not the job of Chuck Todd. Maybe it's Jenny McCarthy's job on The View. Maybe if he wants to be celebrated, he can go on The View. But Chuck's Todd job, Chuck Todd's job, you know what I'm talking about, Wilkane. Chuck Todd's job is to ask policy questions. You just won your election. What are you going to do in Washington, Dave Bratt? So he was asked on the minimum wage. Well, I don't have a serious policy response to that yet, Chuck Todd. He was asked on Syria, hey, I'm just calling to talk about my win. I have another one, Will Kane. All right. Uh, let's play cut three. Okay. One more thing. Yep. A lot of people are worried that uh, immigration reform is dead because of this new uh, election you? win. Yeah. What do you say to that? Uh, I, I don't want to do too much on policy right now. I'm, I'm just, uh, the first thing we need to do, right, we have a, a disaster on the border right now, a humanitarian disaster with kids, and so we need to close down the border. And uh, it, I'll just leave it at that for right now. But I'll be back with you guys next week. I'm, I'm going to take a few days with my family and just uh, let it all soak in and enjoy it. And uh, thank you all for uh, for being here. I, I apologize that I I don't have enough time to, to spend with everybody. But uh, thanks. And that's it for today. i got to go get my hair cut. I've got to go get my hair cut. I'm going to use that, by the way. I can't. I got to go get my hair cut. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> and actually, he did have enough time. That was the cut we just played was 30 seconds. In the 30 seconds where he said, I don't have time. I just want to celebrate. I need to be with my family. I need to go get a haircut. He could have said very simply what his position on immigration was. And what he said was, I don't want to get into policy. There's a disaster on the border. We need to shut them down. What does that mean? Now, look, uh, I, uh, to be to be fair, that was a CNN interview. They they caught him in his car. Okay, so this was not like Dave Bratt sitting down for an interview and refusing to answer questions. I, I will be fair. Well, that's a hugely important detail. I, I think. I'm 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 offering it. Yes. I am offering that detail. Okay. Thank you. I am. However, this cannot become a pattern. And I think rule of three. We've got three examples now, just in the days since winning. This cannot become a pattern. Monday morning. Let me tell you, Will Kane. Monday morning. Dave Bratt needs to answer some serious policy questions. 
I think he knows that. And I think he'll be he'll be ready to do that. He can't keep doing this. He doesn't get uh you know Okay, look, I'm not I'm not playing a victory vacation. I'm really honestly not playing populist with you here. I'm not I'm not I don't I don't agree with you on this. I don't agree with you that the day after his election, he needs to be prepared to every answer every an, answer every policy question that is thrown his way. Now, would it be good if he had these Should answers? we raise the minimum wage? Should we raise the minimum wage? That's not a question. You think the guy who just won that wasn't the question. a very important The district, question was, should we have a minimum wage? Well, he only, Chuck only says, should we have one? Because Dave Bratt didn't answer the question about raising the minimum wage. And it sounded like he was making an argument Look, against a minimum wage in general. Do I think Dave Bratt needs to have opinions on these policy questions at some point? The answer is yes. And so we're not when disagreeing that on happen? that. Well, so far on your way to a haircut in your car, CNN asking you a question while you're rolling up your window, I don't think you have to have it right there. What at that about moment. when you call into MSNBC on the day after to talk to Chuck Todd, who is a policy analyst? A little different. Yes, you should. But I still think I don't know at times is a perfectly acceptable answer. George in Georgia thinks Brat is ready for prime time. Uh, yes, hi there, Will. Good morning, SC. Love the show. And I uh, just wanted to call in and uh, stand up for my little, my uh, my friend here, David Brett. As a fellow economist, I think he wouldn't answer that question specifically because of the fact that uh, as an economist, it's a very detailed question. You need to go into very uh, um, you know, arcane and uh, kind of boring uh, subject matter, and that would just cut the interview short. And I think that's what he couldn't do it because uh, the general populace out there doesn't accept the fact that we, as an economist, we generally don't like minimum wages. So that was one of the answers that he just couldn't get at the time in the short time of the interview with Chuck Todd. Now, I think he is ready for prime time. I really do. Because his uh, six-point plan, which is the platform that he ran on, it's all, it's all the right stuff. It's all the right stuff. Uh, belief in God, small government, strong defense, uh, basically a Reagan, uh, Reagan uh, uh, disciple, you might say. So in that sense, I do believe that he is ready for prime time. He doesn't have to know every little detail about Foreign policy, given time, just like as he, as he says, uh, given time, he'll catch up to the to the subject matter. Right, and um, I think he's going to be. He has the right foundation. That's what I'm looking for in a politician. So, All right, George. Thanks, George. Yeah, Appreciate I, the call. You know, I I hear George's point about economists, and I know where you're going. You're going to say he's not an economist no, anymore. No, he's a no, politician. That's why. I mean, that's why in political science there is this there is this really nerdy rivalry between political scientists and economists because. They live in two different worlds. They operate in two different worlds. And if you've ever listened to an economist speak, they don't sound like politicians, right? right. They take a lot, take a long time to explain, and that's all great. Smart people. Dave Brad is smart. He is a professor. He is an economist. Those are two very different things. And let me just challenge you, Will Kane, and and our listeners. If this were a Democrat, a Democratic professor of economics, you would not be sitting here telling me, I think he's allowed to not know. Okay, listen, listen. You're making very good points. Here's the deal. I'm not necessarily a Dave Bratt fan. I don't know enough about Dave Bratt. I didn't campaign I don't or either, support him early on like, like guys like Doc Thompson did. I have not been on the Dave Bratt bandwagon because I have not known about Dave Bratt. I'm not here to defend him. Yeah. I'm not here to tell you that Dave Bratt is the next great congressman, that we need to immediately think about putting this guy into a position as majority leader, yeah. or that he even needs to be the flag bearer for the way the party should go. I'm not here to say any of that. Yeah. What I'm here to say is that the evidence you have so far, is it is it unflattering to some degree? Yes. 
Is it condemning? Certainly not. And does it show me that he's not ready for prime time? I don't think so. I don't think I don't know is a bad answer. I don't think the inability to tell your position on Syria or uh, immigration or minimum wage or give a long, detailed answer on immigration the day after your election or on during an I don't want to say ambush because that sounds like it's um it's uh, you know planned to put you into a negative light. But in a non-prepared interview, yeah. do you need to have all these answers? My answer to you is no. In the coming months, Dave Bratt will need to have answers to these questions. In do the you coming need months, to have those answers? Hold on. And more importantly, in the coming years, should he get elected, right. we'll find out if Dave Bratt was the right guy. I, I Today, don't disagree. Do you need know. to have those answers? No. Wouldn't it be great if he did, though? Yeah, yes. Wouldn't yes. it be awesome if he had had those policy answers to Chuck Todd or to that CNN reporter? Yes. I mean, it's it's absolutely dishonest and and total spin to say, we didn't need to. Of course you want him to have those answers. Yeah, but that's a couple interviews. So would it have been better to conduct those interviews better? Yes. 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 Are those interviews indicative of whether or not this guy's ready? I hope not. The answer is no. Jerry in Maryland. What do you think, Jerry? How y'all doing this morning? Good. Uh, summer cold's killing me. Okay. <laughs> I hear uh, you, Jerry. Okay, uh, back, uh, let's back up a couple of these questions here and uh, get back to the original question about why is it this guy beat Cantor? I think it has a lot to do with uh, people are just sick of the politicians that they have. They're sick of being lied to. They're sick of being played. They're just tired of it. Yep. They want honest to goodness people who are going to say and back up what they say. Right. Jerry, I totally agree with you. And Eric Cantor uh, came to symbolize the whether or not he is or not. Um, J- uh, Eric Cantor came to symbolize the problem you just espoused. Um, let me go to this. Let me go to Steve real quick in Texas. Uh, Steve, what do you have to say about this debate we're having over Dave Bratt? Yes, sir. Uh, I just want to uh, – let's take a timeout break here for a second, as the libtards like to say. Uh, this man has not been elected into office yet. Okay, He just won a primary. He still has a fight, and there's ways it could trick things, and maybe he finally not even getting elected overall. The man has barely been in, the, uh, in this position for, what, maybe a week? He's being crucified because he can't answer because he wants to get a haircut. Let me tell you something. I would, as a former United States Marine, I'd much rather have a man just like Marcus Luttrell, how he speaks. Let me ask you something. I would prefer to have somebody like a Marcus Luttrell speak for someone like me rather than listen to somebody saying, oh, well, he doesn't speak. You know what? People are sick and tired of this political game. Oh, I'm going to tell you how it goes. Let me, let me tell you something. Do you guys realize that Mr. Uh, 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 Cantor was down there in Florida during the elections? Does that tell you how out of pitch he was? And he's getting, this man's getting crucified. Oh, he had a couple of interviews in a car. He's trying to get a haircut. Yeah, all right. I don't, I don't think anyone's but crucifying Steve, him. You We're just asking questions. No, but, and that's our job, not only as journalists, but also as, as voters. But I think there's something else that Steve is highlighting, and that just because you oppose Eric Cantor doesn't mean that Dave Bratt is also the perfect opposition. And so, uh, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily binary. Eric Cantor, bad. Dave Bratt, good. And I think in the end, Steve is actually getting to that point. We need to see about Dave Bratt, right? We are going to need to see about him through this general election. We're going to need to see about him, more importantly, through his potential uh, seat yeah, what, that can, he holds, how he votes, favor. what he does. Who, yeah. was, who was Buster Douglas? Buster Douglas is the guy that knocked out, during his prime, Mike Tyson in the 1990s. It's when everybody assumed Mike Tyson was wholly unbeatable, dominant, and out of nowhere. Not the second-ranked boxer, not the third-ranked boxer, 
but down the list, a throwaway fight. Buster Douglas knocked Mike Tyson out. Nobody saw it coming. What? Where? What happened? Why don't I know who Buster Douglas is? What happened to him after that? Well, you should know. I don't know what's wrong with you. What happened to him after that? He didn't last long. How long did he last? Uh, I think he held the title for a year or two. Thomas. Oh. Huh. Yeah. Weird. I get your point. I get your analogy. Interesting. <laughs> I get the point you're making. All right. Um, good debate on whether or not Dave Bratt is ready. Whether yeah, or not I'm he is pulling the for him. I hope he Cantor. is. I hope he is. When we come back, I spent a little time going on The View this week, and I guess I opened up a can of worms, not only on gun control, which many of our listeners uh, saw, but when I said this, I said, you know, I, I think everybody's a little bit bisexual. What? Let's debate that when we oh. come back on Kane and Cup. Will Kane and Desi Cup will continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. The next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup, is on. All right, we're going to call an audible here um, because I like to lift the veil on the nonsense of these television radio productions. Pretend like we're doing something. We're talking with you, you and I, S.E., Will, and you. We're hanging out. We're going to. We're not going to, we're going to talk about what I did on the View this week. Right now, we're going to push that till a little later because I do want to get your opinions on what I had to say um, about whether or not everyone is a little bit bisexual. But we need more time than we have right now. Um, so right now, let's do this. Let's talk about some of the least important stories in the news cycle this week. What we have in the past called news you can lose. You're free to lose it. You're free to lose this news. We're going to say it, but just lose it after we say it. <laughs> uh, you want to take us away with the first story? Okay. It's about dolphin sex. Oh, one of your favorite topics, actually. <laughs> it actually is, which is a whole other story. That's a whole other story. But a woman came out to say that in the 1960s, she was doing NASA experiments with dolphins, and she had sex with one. It was consensual, in case anyone was worried. And in a crazy in a crazy follow-up, once she came out, a guy came out, another guy, said that during experiments he was doing um, as, as a scientist, he also had sex with um, a dolphin. It was called Dolly the Dolphin. I saw the first story. This was a researcher, some marine biologist who spent an inordinate amount of time with a dolphin hoping to teach it um, to speak the English language, speak words. And apparently the dolphin woke up, a little, they, they slept together, like literally slept close together. Yeah, and the yeah. dolphin woke up before his lessons a little uh, worked up and fell in love with this lady. And so she almost just like get it out of the way so they can move towards their lessons, started masturbating the dolphin. Okay, I, I mean, I think the way I said it was enough information. Oh, I didn't. But, um, <laughs> okay, so, so By the way, where's PETA on this? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where you come down on this, because like I said, it seems consensual. No, I know, <laughs> I know where you come down on this. I mean, if PETA has any legitimacy, they have a cause here. Well, yeah, I mean, how do you, uh, doesn't know me know? Also, ha- I mean, how do, you, how do you get the permission of the dolphin for this, I don't. I don't know. I don't know no, how I'm serious. you verify. I'm sure Peter has opinions on like the donkey shows in okay. in Mexico. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. How is this yep. different? Okay. Yep. Yep. Except it has no audience. Yep. Okay. Yep. You yep. want to move on? Yeah, I think let's move on. 
<laughs> uh, speaking of animals, by the way, it turns out that animals, according to new research, don't just want to be given treats. They want to earn treats. In an experiment with several dogs, um, they were given the option of either running straight to a treat or going through a series of steps, an exercise they were taught, um, an obstacle course they had to navigate before first earning their treat. And when given the option this experiment, the dogs, not unlike humans, by the way, um, productivity is actually rewarding. They wanted to go through the experiment. They wanted to do the job before receiving the treat. You're already shaking your head. Yeah, I don't believe it. Animals are animals. Maybe they wanted to do the race because exercise is fun. Everybody likes to earn, Essie. No, no. You not get if, if, you, if you're handing out a treat, my dog will take it. Hey, you know who's not ready for prime time? I know we just had an hour-long debate about Dave Bratt. I'm going to tell you somebody who's not ready for prime time. Not necessarily inevitable then. Hillary Clinton. Mm. Got some interviews to share with you to show you exactly what I mean. When we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Cannon Cup. Producer just came in. Said, you know, in the future, before you talk about dolphin sex, you might want to warn the audience. And what did you say? Can I quote you? I'm not worried about it. (laughs) He told a story about a lady who recommended our show or recommended the network uh, to her pastor and gathered the congregation to listen. And it was one of the times where you and I did a News You Can Lose on, I don't know what we... Something no, something off color. Yeah. Something adult. I'd like to apologize to the congregation. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, apparently um, her pastor was like, what are you making us listen to? There are times, I'm sure, when Cane and Cup will not be appropriate for the congregation. And um, we just explored that in the last five minutes. We have had... Uh, a debate over the last hour about whether or not Dave Bratt is ready for prime time. I'll tell you somebody who's revealed they may not just be ready for prime time, despite the inevitability swirling around them, and that is Hillary Clinton. She yeah. just might not be ready. Well, let me... Gosh, I'm going to make a whole lot of enemies today. Let me let me say Hillary Clinton is ready, okay? Hillary Clinton is ready to run for president. However... Well, I mean, look, I'm honest. I know who our audience is, and I'm not always going to tell them what they want to hear. But let me be honest. Hillary Clinton is ready to run for president. She's done it before. She is a seasoned politician. I disagree with her vehemently. I don't think the media treats her um, with the same kind of scrutiny that it treats other people. But she's ready. Okay, fine. However, and we're not debating that. (laughs) No, I am debating that. Okay. Well... Well, what we do need to to talk about is some missteps that she's had. Which I would suggest is evidence she might not be quite as ready as you just made it sound. She's ready. This can I, can is, I, I mean, submit a piece of evidence? Be, May I? May yes, I? please. Cut eight. On the blaze. Whenever you're ready. Radio network. So that's one for you changed your mind. <laughs> you know, I really, I have to say, I think you are um, being just, very persistent, but you are 
playing with my words and playing with what is such an I'm just trying to clarify issue. so I can understand. No, I don't think you are trying <laughs> no. to clarify. I think you're trying to say that, you know, I used to be uh, opposed and now I'm in favor and I did it for political reasons. And that's just flat wrong. So let me just state what I feel like you are implying and repudiate it. I have a strong record. I have a great commitment to this issue. And I am proud of what I've done and the progress we're making. That is Hillary Clinton on her position on gay marriage over the last decade or so in an interview, not with Fox News, not with the Blaze Network, with NPR. Terry Gross, who's just, she's a treasure. She is a treasure. You can hear the tenor of the questions there. I'm just trying to clarify. No, no, I don't think you are. No, I don't think you are. Now to Terry Gross's credit, she asked the question several different times. Yeah. Asked for clarification because Hillary Clinton was dodging. Did you change your opinion on gay marriage? When did you change your opinion? And why, why did you change and your why? opinion? Yeah. And Hillary Clinton proved wholly unready to be able to handle persistent questioning Completely. from NPR. Completely. And look, she no one's asked her that question since she, quote unquote, evolved on the issue. And it's a totally valid question. I've heard even Democrats and Hillary watchers on the left this week saying, that's a valid question. Why did you change your opinion? Was it a political calculation? Or did you did you change your mind on the issue? Or had you always thought that way, but you felt like you hadn't you you weren't able to to talk like that about gay marriage, and then suddenly you could. Can I tell you what I think this is indicative of? This is somebody who's been in the ivory tower. Now, I don't want to make a personal attack on Hillary Clinton. I am telling you objectively, I see someone who has been allowed to sit in the ivory tower for at least five years. Kid gloves. And been treated with kid gloves. And the only two instances that I can think of, off the top of my head at least, where she has been asked tough-ish questions. Yeah, ish. She responded horribly. One, this NPR interview, which is one of the ish parts of the tough-ish questions. And the other, of course, we know is when she was questioned over Benghazi in front of- What difference does it make? Exactly. I, you know, there's criticism, some of it invalid, invalid, but there is criticism that people don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton because she reminds them of their mother or their, like, nagging wife. Now, there is some sexism in that in that criticism. However, let me acknowledge, as a woman myself, I saw a little of myself in her terseness. <laughs> when I have argued with my husband, Just for stop example. The show. Stop the show. Rewind about 30 minutes yeah, ago. Yeah. When I've argued with my husband, like when I've felt on the defensive, um, I can take that tone. Like, no, no, I don't think you are trying to clarify. No, let me <laughs> let me tell you what I think you're trying to do. It's not an attractive side of me, but um, this is this is sometimes where you go. And I think that is such um an unattractive side of her also. And you saw it in the Benghazi, you saw it in the Benghazi um testimony. She gets exasperated and defensive and indignant. Like, why are you even asking me this question? Do you know what's interesting? When the rest of the country, the rest of the country is dying to know the answers to those questions. They feel they deserve those answers. And it's your job to provide those answers with a smile on your face. And instead, she's indignant. What difference does it make? And same with this. No, I don't think you're trying to ask. I think you're trying to press me. When you get defensive with your husband, okay, when you take that tone, let me ask you a question. Are you usually wrong at that point? Does he usually have a point? 
Is he usually winning the argument? No. I, oh, God. Well, no, let me say, I don't know. It, it's not about the substance of the line of, of questioning. It's it's an effect. It's a device. I It's something I use occasionally to... Um, to distract from the actual substance. Because you're losing the substance, and that's my point. No, Hold on. but not necessarily. I'm no, not let interested me just finish. in your let fight. Let me just finish. Not necessarily. I don't know if I'm winning or losing. Probably sometimes I'm losing. So- probably sometimes I'm winning. But it's a device that I'll use to outmuscle and to win, to win, to shut down an argument, to shut it down. Yes, because I'm not talking about you and your husband anymore. I'm talking about it's a device that people employ. Defensiveness is a reflection mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. insecurity. You are losing, and you know down deep, and you may be smart enough to see where the argument's going. You can see three or four steps down the road and realize, I'm going to lose this debate if or it I keeps going. I just don't want to have it. Like, I don't want to have this conversation, and so instead because of you're going answer to the questions or continue going, I'll just be like, you know— Here's what I think is going on right now. So the point I'm making is Hillary Clinton is losing on the substance of those points. When she's being questioned like that over Benghazi, the defensiveness is all the evidence you need. A confident person who has righteousness on their side never needs to adopt defensiveness. And someone like in this situation with NPR, she's vulnerable on this issue of when you evolved on gay marriage because the truth is – Despite where she is today and where the Democratic base is today, 10 years ago, it wasn't, and she wasn't, and she doesn't want to discuss that. The point is she's losing, and you're defensive. I think largely the point has been made. When you adopt that defensiveness, the truth is now out here. You- well, I don't agree. Um, I, I think you adopt that defensiveness maybe sometimes when you're losing, but also because you don't think you, – you think you're better than people. You think that I don't have to answer these, these questions of yours. And you feel like I'm doing you the favor of showing up here. This is what I think her attitude is. I'm doing you the favor. I'm showing up here. How dare you ask me serious questions? How dare you? I think you're right that she's been in such a bubble for the past five years as Secretary of State that she forgot what it's like to be a public servant and to ask for the American people to give her their vote. And I know she hasn't, she's not running yet, but I assume that she is. And if she does run, she's going to have to really adjust her attitude because that defensiveness, whether you think it's an admission of being wrong on the issue, or I think it's, it's um, a reflection of arrogance. I think it's both. Yeah. It, it probably is a combination of both of arrogance and having to deign to have these conversations. And how dare you push back at me? I gave you my answer. That should be enough. Right. Well, it's not enough. Um, that arrogance. I, either way, she's going to need a real attitude adjustment if she plans to run. Well, this wasn't her only misstep in no, the wasn't. week. In the week. No, it wasn't. It wasn't the only time she showed us she may not be quite ready for prime time or at least not be ready to be questioned by those she thought would simply usher her to a nomination. She has long had a hostile relationship with the media it is famous her disdain for the media is famous and advisors from back in her husband's time in the white house have tried to work with her to be more open to the media and i think what you're seeing here is that that hostility that mistrust of the media has hardened and it's now to a place where i don't think she's capable of opening up again. I don't know if I buy that completely. Let's just do this. Let's go into that when we come back. Does she just have this hostility towards the media 
That may be true, but then I have some questions to ask uh, when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and Cup returns now. Hey, welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm SE Cup. That potty mouth over there is Will Kane. Uh, we're talking about Hillary and whether she's ready. I argue that she's probably ready. She's a trained politician, which actually is one of her major problems. Um, but she did not have a good week. She did not have a good week, and and frankly, even her supporters are um, pretty disappointed in the way that she's handled things. We just played for you that NPR clip where she was being brutally grilled, <laughs> brutally grilled by Terry Gross of NPR <laughs> um, on a pretty substantive question. Uh, I've got some more. I've got some more ammo for for this. But first, let's go to our caller, Mark. Mark, what's uh, what's your take on all of this? Yeah, Will there. I've uh, got a point of information for you there, buddy. Oh, thanks. What's up? Uh, you got to remember that a woman is never wrong. Oh. They only change their mind. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, I, I've been married. It's going on 40 years now. And uh, I, I learned what's called the man's prayer. Uh-huh. It is uh, you bow your head, you say, I'm a man. I can change. If I have to, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Mark speaks your language, Will Kane. Mark, I think you're referencing when I asked S.E. it's because she was wrong, right? Her defensiveness was because she was wrong, and no. she said, no, no. No, 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 I'm not <laughs> wrong. Thanks, Mark. I like that a lot. And, and I think how Hillary— long, How long, Will, have you been married? I've been married 11 years. Uh, nay long enough. If you take that philosophy that I just passed on to you, you'll remain married for many years— Happily married. All right. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate the advice. I'll tell you somebody else who uh, has uh, become adept at changing their mind, to your point, Hillary Clinton. Uh-huh. Once again this week, not just on her pressing NPR questions on gay marriage, but in that contentious relationship you speak of she has with media organizations like, I think it was ABC. Uh-huh. Diane Sawyer. Yeah. Where she said, you know, coming out of the White House, we just, uh, times were tough. Yeah, so Diane Sawyer asked about, you know, this is also a, a fair line of questioning that no one has bothered to ask Hillary Clinton about. You make millions and millions of dollars at the ATM of Goldman Sachs and other Wall Street firms who pay you a lot of money to speak to them. And yet, are you running as a progressive? Are you still a progressive? Take a listen to uh, to this clip. It has been reported you've made $5 million. Making speeches, the president's made more than a hundred million dollars. Well, if if you you have no reason to remember, but we came out of the White House not only dead broke but in debt. Uh, we had no money when we got there, and we struggled to, you know, piece together the resources for mortgages, for houses, for Chelsea's education. You know, it was not easy. Uh, Bill has worked really hard, and it's been amazing to me. He's worked very hard. First of all, we had to pay off all our debts, which was, you know, you had to make double the money because of, obviously, taxes, and then pay off the debts and get us houses and take care of family members. But do you- oh, my God. 
Plural. Plural. Houses. Get us houses. We had to get us houses. Everyday struggles of Americans. I mean, had you learned nothing from Mitt Romney? You don't talk about houses, plural. It it was an amazing, I mean, I talked to... uh, yeah, she's inevitable. Some she's Democrats totally inevitable. who worked for Hillary Clinton who were like, oh, my God, how could she not have been ready for that? There are so many better answers to that question. And it really felt amateurish to go into that level of detail about your personal life and why you needed millions of dollars. And God, it was really bad. And she later had to clarify what she was talking about. And we've struggled. We know struggle. It was really bad. And I've been saying for a while now that the Democratic Party is pushing leftward with people like Elizabeth Warren and Bill de Blasio who are moving the party toward progressive, anti-bank, anti-corporate, anti-Wall Street. Um, She does not fit within that party anymore. And I used to think she didn't fit um, just on her policies, but that she could still talk a good talk. She can't talk a good talk anymore Hmm. on that. She doesn't talk like a progressive. She doesn't speak that language. She is totally lost in translation on these issues. She's got to find her way again on sort of the of the people kind of uh, mentality because she can't talk real human anymore. You know, earlier you said that she has this notoriously contentious relationship with the media. But I have a hard time. Now, I'm not the most plugged in uh, D.C. person. I'm not trying to play the everyman to your political knowledge. I'm just saying – I haven't heard that. And this week in the media specifically, we heard several instances of uh, media personalities, not conservative talkers, saying we have totally given Hillary a free pass. Mm -hmm. Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe, Chris Cuomo on CNN saying up to this point, the media has done nothing but just usher her in. Yeah. To the Democratic nomination. So I see a very friendly relationship, friendly relationship. Oh, yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. And who is totally unprepared to the, answer the, the slightest The media has been very question. kind to the Clintons and, and very kind to Hillary Clinton. But there have always been complaints that she's been very closed to the media. That hasn't stopped them from being kind to her, maybe until now. But the question of access to Hillary, again, since since the days that her husband was in the White House, has been a problem for the media and she's been pretty overt about not wanting to deal with the media and her opinions of the media have been sort of discovered and publicized and they're not positive. So uh, combine that with the fact that she's making some pretty glaring mistakes right now and we might see the media start to ask some serious questions. Those were not the only two missteps. Um, Just quickly, her book came out this week and in it there were some, I think problematic passages on Israel. She talked about Palestinian territories as being occupied, which you'll remember is the same language that Chris Christie used. Uh, And he had to immediately apologize for it. Now, that's because Chris Christie at the time was trying to woo Jewish Republicans, the Jewish Republican coalition and Sheldon Adelson. uh, And that's a powerful block on his side of the aisle. But Hillary Clinton has been recently touting her friendly relationship with Israel and her strong defense of Israel. And I'm wondering if the media will give this the same kind of scrutiny and attention that it gave Chris Christie because she used the same exact language. And in fact, there are three other passages in this book where she's even more inflammatory about the Palestinian position and siding with the Palestinian position over over Israel. 
And I'm just wondering if the left has just conceded Israel, right, to the right, that they don't even offer a pretense of being pro-Israel anymore. Well, your question regarding the media seems to have already been answered because this story, despite you having written a column in the New York Daily News, has largely not made no, traction in Jake the media. Jake Tapper talked about it, but other than that, I haven't seen anyone talk about it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not surprising. But at the same time, um, again, I have to wonder why Hillary Clinton decided to include that language in her book. Um, I know that her book was written by a lot of different people, and so maybe maybe she didn't go through it as, as carefully as she should have. But that seems to me another amateurish mistake. You know that that could be inflammatory. Why do it? You don't have to include anything in your book that you don't want to or that isn't super, super safe. Uh, whether or not you consider having multiple houses dead broke, whether or not you can take hard questions from NPR, I'm suggesting to you Hillary Clinton might not be quite as inevitable as everyone has thought. She's bathroom, rusty. Bathroom etiquette. Hard questions. I'm sure you have some, too. Give us a call. 888-900-3393. We're going to talk about that next on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane and Essie Cup return? There's a delicate dance of etiquette, a little internal debate we all have every time we walk into that public restroom. Do I go to this urinal? Do I go to that urinal? Or do I go to the stall? We don't all have that debate. About (laughs) half the population does. (laughs) I'm sure you have your own. There's so many questions that we don't ask out loud, but yet debate internally um, about appropriate bathroom etiquette. 888-900-3393. Ask your questions now. Oh, are you an expert? Well. Are you going to answer questions on bathroom etiquette? If I can't, I will bring in an expert. How about that? Oh, wow. make you this promise. I'll bring in a bathroom etiquette expert. Well, let me, I I have some experts here. I I read about a study um, in this month's uh, Wired magazine. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's about how to limit the splashback, uh, I guess, that men face when they go number one. This is one of those times where maybe we warned the church congregation <laughs> um, that we're going to be talking about men men bathroom etiquette. Things everyone goes through. Okay, fine. Do, why are you so defensive? <laughs> we're doing it. We're doing the segment. So what does science tell me? Well, first of all, amazing news. There's something called the Brigham Young University Splash Lab. All they study are like fluid dynamics. And one of the things that these guys looked at was urinal dynamics. And they tried to figure out, quote, a spritz-free way to pee. And um, they got huge feedback after they released the results of this study. One guy said, called to thank, thank them for saving his marriage. Wow. So they offer some advice, both for a toilet and a urinal, on how to avoid that nasty splashback. Would you like to hear it? Of course I would. Okay. So at the toilet, you're not going to like half of this. The first advice is, which you're not going to mind, 
Don't aim for the water because liquid on liquid collisions create a bigger splash than liquid on solid. So point toward the sides of the porcelain. The second advice for the toilet, you're going to hate. That one, by the way, is somewhat intuitive. Uh, it's been in oh, practice. Oh, you already know this? Okay. Well, I mean, I've been practicing that. Sorry, science. You're not needed. Will Kane already figured this out. Um, the second advice on the toilet, you're going to hate. Guess what it is. What? Take a seat. Yeah, I hate that. <laughs> it says take a seat. Five to seven inches. I, I can't read this. It says, take a, <laughs> it says take a seat because the closer you get, to the toilet, the less splashback there is, and you hate this. I don't understand sitters. Um, sitting are sitters is, quitters. They're it's it's emasculating. I don't understand ever the need to sit. Um, well, well, when it comes to this, yeah, number one. Uh, so the urinal advice to limit splashback. Advice number one: closer is cleaner. Um, their experiments show that urinating fifteen inches away will spray 150 square inches. At only five inches or less, the damage is negligible. And advice two, change your angle of attack. Rather than aiming straight, point down and to the side. An angle of 30 degrees or less will reduce splash by 90%. I appreciate science's contribution to this. But Thank I you, think science. Many, many men... <laughs> Have figured these things out through trial and error. No, but you don't have a splash lab. <laughs> you don't have splash labs. I'm going to bring in an expert in bathroom etiquette. Um, although, I don't necessarily agree with him on much, especially politically. My friend Pete Dominic, who's a host of uh, Stand Up with Pete Dominic on the mornings on Sirius XM Radio, we basically disagree on very little, Pete. Um, I mean, on very, we basically agree on very little. Uh, and I think I would include bathroom etiquette in this category. Have you so, talked about this with him already? One day at CNN. Oh. I walk into <laughs> a bathroom. Now, this is a men's bathroom at CNN with one stall. One stall only. And one urinal? And one urinal. Okay. That stall would never be used in my life for any purpose whatsoever. What? It doesn't provide the appropriate amount of privacy nor anonymity. Oh. And I walk in one day. And who comes sauntering out of that one stall, confidence intact, not an ounce of humility or shame? Uh-huh. Pete Dominic, who joins me right now. Wow. I'm a, I have no fear. It, it was a major turning point, Will, S.E., for me when I finally conquered my fear of mm-hmm. being able to go to the men's room and take a seat and relax and not worry about judgment. From Will Kane. From anyone. Will Kane judges a- sitters, Pete. He says sitters are quitters. Will Kane has two sons. Pete Dominic has two daughters. Sitters are not quitters. Sitters are feminists. Oh. Oh, wait a minute now. So now. Whoa. So <laughs> this just got real. <laughs> we, we have to discern. Uh, we have to decide what we're talking about. Are we talking about public restrooms or are we talking about our own homes? Will Kane doesn't sit anywhere for anyone. No. <laughs> All right, let's just stick with uh, number one here. The, you know, the, I caught Will sitting in a urinal once, but that's not a story he wanted. <laughs> I don't understand the man who sits to pee, Pete. Um, you do this? You sit down to take a leak? It was a few years ago now when I realized that my stream was not as accurate as I'd always been. You turn a certain age and 
things start to change. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa. Stop right there, Pete Dominic. Stop right there. This is fascinating to me. Your stream changes as you get older? It's a common known fact. Uh, speaking of science, SE, yeah. most men will experience this at some point. What? They'll realize they're not the sniper they once used to be. <laughs> what? That's amazing. That's amazing to me. So you don't learn over time how to get better and more targeted with this. It actually, it gets worse. It does. You have to learn how to control volume and pressure and understand where you're at in terms of what you've got in the tank. Oh, uh-huh. So, so you like, check you out. You've got a lot to tank. Women understand it's going to come out at a different force. Here's the deal. Okay. As a man living with three, well, really technically four females, their dog is a female, but I'm not concerned about her on this issue. I <laughs> tend to make a, a bit of a mess. I don't want my daughters to ever have to deal with me. And so, yes. You I'll sit down. Easier, you know. You're so That's caught nice. up, Will, with ego and masculinity. It's just easier. It's easier. And it's nicer. It's kinder. You know, Will, Will Kane has there. a wife. He might have two sons, but he has a wife. What have you done for her lately, Will Kane? Well, not sit down, I'll tell you that. <laughs> the seat never gets ever left up in my home. There's no reason for it ever to beat up. If, if the seat has been is up in my home, it means another man was visiting her. <laughs> That's how you know. That's how no, you no, know. No, no, no. It means a man was visiting your house. <laughs> oh, my God. So, okay. a, real rugged, a real rugged, masculine. Okay, so let's go through a couple more of these, Pete. Um, by the way, my Twitter is absolutely blowing up on uh, bathroom etiquette questions. Pete, you know this. You've listened to the show, which I appreciate. We do this thing called Game of Bros. Mm. Today, you are. Our game of bros. You're our, like celebrity bro. You are celebrity bro. So let's oh, fire bad. off if we can. Who was unavailable, Daughtry? <laughs> <laughs> Jose, do we have the intro? We don't have the intro. Essie, sing it. I can't. Game of bros. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. All right, Pete, you walk into a public restroom. It it's is, always there to help a lady out. It is, uh, it, it's, it's got its urinals lined up. You decide for whatever reason that day, perhaps because it's a public restroom, you're not going to sit. You go to a specific urinal, right? You yeah. don't go to the middle one because that ruins it for every other guy that comes in the room. I'm not thinking about any other man. I'm, a, I'm mindful. As you know, I live with mindfulness and stay in the moment. <laughs> and while I'll be respectful of other folks using any public facility, there's a simple choice, and that is which urinal will give me the most distance from another man. Yes, yeah. exactly. Unless, of course, I see you in there, Will, and then I'll cozy up and go, hey, hey, friend. <laughs> Just to I'll make it thing. awkward. Right. You never go to the, you never go shoulder to shoulder, unless you must, unless it's a half Airport, to. yes. Right. There's no choice. Okay, but you bring up a good second question. Sporting event, trough. No choice. No choice. What about the conversation at the urinal? Unacceptable. <laughs> Although I, I break it on purpose just to make other men uncomfortable. And I usually get into a really in-depth issue. I do too. I, I told SC I love breaking that uncomfortable barrier at the urinal. The stall is a clear no-go zone. Do not speak to me. Um, but I love – Reddit actually had a thread on this. What's the most uncomfortable thing you can say to a man at the urinal? And just look over at him real creepily and say – I like your watch. <laughs> I usually, uh, I once did something terribly wrong 
at the SiriusXM public restroom, I saw a buddy of mine, thought it would be funny. It wasn't funny at all, and it was an HR violation, and I had to have a little talk. <laughs> he was at the urinal. I just went over and gave him a light shoulder massage. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. not, you can't do that. Turns out he's a CEO. I thought it was somebody else at the same. Pete, you can't do haircut. that. No. That's, that reminds me of Along Came Polly. You know uh, Alec Baldwin's character? Yeah, he rubs his ear. Where he goes into the <laughs> urinal with, uh, with uh, Ruben Pfeffer. Ben Stiller and uh, rubs his ears after uh, relieving himself and and not after washing his hands. Good things. Good, good things. things. Good hey, things. Good things, Ruben. Pete, will you stick around for a minute? I do have a deck to power wash, but that can wait. Let's take a quick break because I've got so many questions, not only of my own but on Twitter, that we need to put to our expert bro in this game of bros on bathroom etiquette when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back with our expert bro today, an extended version of Game of Bros. Pete Dominic, host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Sirius XM Radio. Isn't that, fasc- isn't that fascinating? Can I stop you right there? Stand Up with Pete Dominic. Turns out he's a sitter. Oh my God! <laughs> uh, we're going over bathroom etiquette with Pete Dominic. And I tell you, Twitter is actually blown up a ton of questions. Yeah, they like this topic. And I, uh, I have a ton. So, Pete. Um, let's just run through some of these if we can real quick. Is it okay to take your phone or your iPad with you to the toilet? No. Technology has ruined the experience. (laughs) There is far too much time-wasting, procrastination, and if it's a conversation, I don't want to hear it. I literally was sitting next to a guy once, who said, you know, Mike, I'm not in the office right now. And I just started, I wanted to start screaming, yeah, that's because he's on the toilet. So that's when I advise anyone else to ruin that phone call with your own flush. You know, I'm not in the office right now. That's because he's on the can. I actually tried to make the toilet flush, but there was more technology with that damn, the laser yeah. That flushes when it wants to. So I'm sitting there waving my hand trying to get the flush. <laughs> Meanwhile, this guy's making trades. Awful. No, you're 100% correct on this one. And by the way, I'm continually shocked at the guy who takes the call while on the can. So, right, he's sitting there, it rings, and he's like, hey, hello? Are are you kidding me? We're all all participating in silence here. Right, right. Um, But what about not the call? What about running through Twitter or flipping through your Facebook page off of your phone or iPad? Or playing Angry Birds. It depends. If you're in a public restroom where there is demand, that's not okay. Yeah. It's not all right to be taking up time, whether it be Angry Birds, Twitter, or email. <laughs> yeah, in and out. Else, maybe me is dancing outside the stall. Yeah, I agree. Pete's a very considerate person. His whole he's he's adopted and changed his entire bathroom based upon everyone else. It's mutual respect. You want to be treated as you treat others. And in the in in a public restroom, you know, it's it's really really wrong to be in there doing anything but what you're supposed to be doing. Although yeah. some of us do find sanctuary, and frankly, I've been known to hide in there. 
Oh. Well, let me ask you this, Pete. Talking about mutual respect, I, I got a great question. What's the smoothest but not weird way to let someone know as you leave a public restroom that the smell in there was there when you when you went in? The wasn't me. It wasn't me. That's the what it wasn't me explanation. How this do you do is that? Clearly one of them. The, the most difficult issues. <laughs> I know, I know. You have to deal with, and the there that is a great question. And and Essie, the answer to that is there isn't one. The answer is run, no eye contact. <laughs> yeah, run. You weren't in there. This Never is happened. The kind of thing you don't look at the person coming in because you can pretend you didn't see them. God forbid you're walking past them at the cubicle later on yeah. on the way to the kitchen and their eyebrows lift. I know it was you. No, you don't. I didn't see you. You didn't see me. It didn't happen. Right. Do you do a shoe check when you go into the public restroom? You know you do. You you kind of. Oh no doubt. I know exactly whose shoes are whose because I have to know uh, who's in there, how long in there, in there, and what I can or can't say. Which of course would break my earlier rule that I'm not supposed to talk. But you know me, I can never shut up. What should I What should I do when I go into a women's bathroom mm-hmm. and the girl next to me? Because I also do the shoe the shoe check, and mm-hmm. the girl next to me is facing the toilet. Her shoes are facing the toilet. I, I can't make sense of this question. What are you talking about? You should tell the uh, security that there's a man in the window. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at. Because the shoes are facing the toilet. I see what's happening. I hear what's happening. Really? Then there's a flush. And then she, legitimately she, leaves that stall. What, what am I to make of that? What, what am I make, to say? What are you to make of just seeing one pair of shoes, then a large paper bag next to them that is shaking. Mm-hmm. What? What's um, going on in there? What? Watch out for the bag. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Pete Dominic. Thank you for joining us today. Everybody can listen to him on Sirius XM Radio. I join him, I think, almost every Tuesday. We have vigorous debates. I think we really got somewhere there. On some highbrow topics. Some people didn't like it, thought it was a little lowbrow, but I promise you, you have these debates. You have these conversations yeah, on your own. Yeah, get over it. Thanks, Pete. When we come back on Kane and Cup, a very important update. You're listening to Kane and Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane, S.E. Cup R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, welcome back. I'm Missy Cup, and I'm Will Kane. Holy follow-up is all I have to say. There I am earlier this week, Thursday morning, opening up my New York Daily News as I always do, and what is there but a follow-up to a story we covered on Kane and Cup? I want to say exclusively. I don't think we covered it exclusively, but we did. We did do a really good job with that story uh, a couple months ago. Let me refresh our listeners on what the original story was. I know they'll remember because it was an amazing story. A New York, a New Jersey cardiologist goes to a strip club in New York City, and four times, four times, and claims. That the over $100,000 bill he got, uh, he doesn't need to pay because he was drugged. He was drugged and his credit cards 
were stolen and rung up. He wasn't even there. He wasn't even there. On four separate occasions. On four separate occasions, it wasn't him. The dog ate my homework four different times. Ridiculous. We were indignant. We dare someone say that that. to be ridiculous. And in fact, it's honestly insulting to all of us. It was insulting to our intelligence. How dare you, sir? We know better than that. It was you. And in fact, because we're good journalists, (laughs) we had the manager of that strip club. It's called Scores in New York City. Call in to talk to us about this gentleman's claim. Because Scores sued this guy, Dr. Zayad Yunin, and um, for damages, for, for unpaid, for the unpaid bill. And the guy that we had from Scores said, we have him on videotape. Right, listen. He was definitely there. Yeah, listen to Cut 10. This is what he said at the time. When he went out a few times to go to the bathroom, he was talking to me. He even invited me to go to a, uh, a giant football game with him and gave me his cell number. Sounds drugged. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah, very. very. I mean, listening, listening to you, um, when I was listening to you talk, I was saying to myself, I started to laugh. I said, who would believe something like this? Who indeed? Um, no one. But his, his story was these girls came to either his apartment or a hotel room. What? They drugged him, took his credit card, took his passport because we have copies of everything, and had a party there what? without him. And of course, four times? Four times. Yeah. Four times. So we are incredulous. We're incredulous. In fact, do we have another clip? That was us from just a few months ago. That's right. Cannot believe this story. Cannot believe. Do we have another clip? Let's play another clip of us discussing this ludicrous story. The one thing we we pride ourselves on, and you'll probably probably never see us in the paper, when a a celebrity comes in and they're having a good time and spending money, we make sure they stay out of the paper. Discretion. Put them in the paper, absolutely. But you will get in the paper if you refuse to pay a $135,000 bill and say that you were drugged. Absolutely. Yeah, you will. That's all of a sudden you guys are ready to talk. (laughs) Absolutely. And talk he did. We talked about that. We put the spotlight on this guy for daring to give us this excuse and shaming his wife. I think I was indignant also about the shame he brought upon his wife. So the follow-up to this story. Okay, breaking news banner here. Uh, update to that story. Yeah. He might have been telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so I opened my paper on Thursday. New York Daily News. Stripper crime ring drugged customers rang up 190000 in charges on credit cards, say authorities. This is amazing. Oh. So the nuts and bolts of this story are the police arrested four uh, dancers connected to this crime ring who apparently would go out to like really nice New York City bars and find well-dressed, you know, financiers and slip them molly or some other kind of ketamine drug ketamine and then corral them back to a strip club including scores another one called Roadhouse in Queens Roadhouse and essentially charge up their credit cards. And sometimes these guys, these marks, would wake up like in their cars, sometimes at home in bed, and not be aware 
of what had just happened. With very little memory of what had happened, that they had spent sometimes 30000 50000 in some instances up to $100,000 in charges at a strip club. And we, on that call a month or two ago, the manager of scores told us how they did this. It's because there would be four or five strippers, coincidentally, in the private champagne room, ordering drinks, yes, ordering food, yes, but staying in there for four or five hours. That's how you rack up a bill like that. And the story you just told us, SC, the way that this crime ring um, worked, that they would go find these guys, bring them back to the strip club, drugged already, charge up their cards. In short, that story is exactly what the doctor said. No, he's even part of this. Because Zayed Yunin, who was sued by scores for that unpaid bill, um, got a lawyer, of course. And the lawyer in this news story says, we were always confident that law enforcement efforts would expose that my client was preyed upon by this ring and not responsible for charges to his credit card. It's amazing because the, the authorities say that the, the, the crime ring here was sure that these guys would not have the courage to go to the police and admit, maybe I was at a strip club, but I don't know how I got there. Maybe they were embarrassed. Maybe they, maybe they went willingly to the strip club, but didn't you know willingly pay for all those charges. And everyone kept quiet. Except our doctor friend, our doctor friend who dared to say it wasn't me. It wasn't only him that it happened to, is your point. This happened to four or five men. And as you said, these ladies would blackmail them. They would say, if you go and contest these charges, if you attempt to fight back, we have pictures, we have stories, we will tell about the things you did tonight. And most of them stayed quiet, except for the doctor that was mocked across the New York media sphere. Yeah, including right here on Kane and Cup. Like, handily on Kane and Cup. We mocked him without abandon. With, like, reckless abandon, not caring or thinking for one second that he could be telling the truth. For that, I'd like to apologize to him. No? I would say this. (laughs) We ended that interview with the manager of scores saying, what we hope happens here is that justice is served. Yeah. Not that you win the case. and I just wanted answers. I think that, once again, even though we have new information, we still need to suggest justice should be served. Yeah, I mean, and now I don't know who to believe. This is simply a competing story. Now I don't know who to believe. Because you're right. I mean, these people were indicted. They haven't been prosecuted yet. That's right. So we don't know. But it's certainly looking good for our doctor friend, Zayed Yunin. So there's a very important update. Sometimes it's an amazing update. A crazy story also happens to be a true story. Yeah. Yeah, this could be one of those times. This could be one of those times. Um as journalists, I'm glad we did this. Okay. I'm glad we brought this story full circle because our listeners deserve to know the whole story. Um it was a revolutionary week for School reform for school choice from oh, all the way from California turn. to New York. That's right. Hard turn. Hard turn. Uh, I'm serious, though. A revolutionary week. Court decision in California this week promises to potentially completely upset the teachers union. Let's talk about that when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
Kane and Cup. Like questions are just flowing, one might say, in on bathroom etiquette. Con- oh. Still continuing to flow. Hot topic. Those questions. Hot topic. Um, khakis, some pointing out. What do you do about khakis in the bathroom? Do you go wash your hands? I mean, because you lean against the counter and then water splash the khakis, then you ought to walk back out and it looks like you completely... Khakis are a bathroom nightmare. Oh. Who told you to wear khakis? Well, I don't wear khakis. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> good point. <laughs> khakis, first mistake. <laughs> um, this is a massive week for education reform. Out in California, there was a case called Vergara versus California. It was a suit by nine students that alleges that teacher tenure, the teachers union contracts to create teacher tenure, force the retention of bad teachers at the expense of potentially good teachers. And not only do they force the retention of bad teachers, but they force bad teachers into inevitably underprivileged and minority communities. Thus, People that live in districts that are poorer, higher percentage of minorities, end up with bad teachers. And as a result, this violates California's constitution. Its constitution basically mirrors the United States Constitution on the Equal Protection Clause, that everyone has a right to the equal protection of the laws. The suit alleged that by giving some students, requiring some students, relegating some students to these zoned schools with bad teachers, inevitably bad teachers, you have violated their right to equal protection of the laws. A California judge said, yes, this in fact has violated California's constitution. The teachers' union contract, therefore, is unconstitutional. This is a major revolution in attempting to scale back the influence of the teachers' union, of the just absolute oppressiveness of the teachers' union contracts. And these kind of suits it is suggested, are going to be filed now across this nation. In the state of New York, state of Texas, teachers' union contracts could be challenged as unconstitutional. Now, as a policy matter, Essie, this excites me like none other. Mm-hmm. You know education reform is massively important to me. I love where this comes out. I think education is the number one focus on how we could solve most of our problems in society, and I think the teachers' union is the number one problem in thwarting that reform. So I love how this came out. Well, uh, it turns out the American public increasingly agrees with you because teachers unions have taken a real image hit over the past few years. Um, According to recent polling, the number of Americans who see teachers unions as a negative influence on public schools shot up to 43 percent last year. That is compared to 32 percent who see unions as a positive force. Teachers unions. Um, the NEA, National Education Association, one of the largest teachers union, has lost 230,000 members or 7% of its membership in the past few years. And so has the American Federation of Teachers, another powerful teachers union. Um, so much so that even Democrats are questioning some of the policies and programs that these unions are promoting. The one you just talked about in California is one, but also requiring districts to lay off junior teachers first, right? regardless of how effective they are in the classroom, before senior teachers is rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. This is a policy that has forced, in some instances, the teacher of the year, right? The one, yeah. I'm talking about specifically the teacher that has won that, at some, in some instances, at the state level. 
teacher of the year to be fired because she is a younger or he is a newer teacher compared to someone with more seniority who had to be retained. Yeah, on the California case, I mean, the 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 Democratic response has been really impressive. Um, Education Secretary Arne Duncan hailed the ruling. Congressman George Miller, a Democratic voice on education policy in Congress, called the union policies indefensible. New York Times editorial referred to those laws that the unions defended in that California case as shameful, anachronistic, and stupidity. Okay, let me tell you how important what you just said is. Yeah. I said earlier that I like how this case came out, the policy of upsetting the teachers' union contracts and these ridiculous teachers' tenure rules. I don't like the way it came out. I don't like the process through which this policy was enacted. This was a judge who read the Equal Protection Clause, again, which largely mirrors the United States Equal Protection Clause, the California one. He read it very broadly, and he said that students have a right, and many people have said this, a civil right to education, and therefore, because of the way we read this case, an equal education. The point is this. If judges are the ones that enact this change, if judges through activism read their constitution that broadly and take down these contracts, we have to understand that that sword has another side to it, a double-edged sword, and it is that another judge— one who perhaps isn't quite so friendly to education reform, could read the Equal Protection Clause to say things like, well, charter schools are giving a great education to a few. We can't have an education for a few. Right. We must have equal education for everyone. And they could thwart education reform coming at it from another way. Right, right, right. No, it's a good point. There's, but but there's, to, to the point of your, you yeah. reading off the New York Times yeah. and, and Arne Duncan, the way to do this is to win the political battle. Right. Is to break Democrats lockstep with the teachers union and it's begun to happen some Democrats have really walked away including Andrew Cuomo here in the state of New York when he took up for charter schools so yeah it's no longer orthodox on the left to support the teachers union. yeah it needs to become unpalatable to support some of these policies and it is and and there's another case coming up that's going to be I think equally as important uh in the Supreme Court it's called Harris v Quinn and essentially um What's happening there is that the, the court might overturn 40 years of precedent that requires workers, teachers, to pay dues if they benefit from a union's collective bargaining work, even if they're not members of the union, which is something a lot of unions have faced, not just teachers' unions. The idea, well, if you benefit from this union work, then you should have to pay. Um, but that could take away a massive chunk of money from teachers' unions if the conservative court rules against this, this decades-old precedent. Um, Teachers' unions get a lot of money that way. Oh, we know what will happen, right? In the state of Wisconsin, after Scott Walker's union reforms, when it no longer was required for public union employees to give part of their dues to the union as membership. Once that requirement, once that forced membership, once those forced dues are no longer there, the force mechanism of it, the union uh, membership in the state of Wisconsin has plummeted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Plummeted. It has all over the country. But I think to your point, to your point where this needs to be most effective is in encouraging Democrats to walk away. 
And there were efforts. I'm, I'm reading from a Politico report right now. There were efforts in 2007 to do that. A handful of wealthy donors teamed up under an umbrella group called Democrats for Education Reform. And their goal was to finance the campaigns of Democrats who were willing to break with the teachers' unions. And it worked big time. People like Antonio Villagarosa, the mayor of L.A., Rahm Emanuel, Michael Nutter, the mayor of Philadelphia, um, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, they sided with that umbrella group against the teachers' unions on a number of issues. And those are obviously people who have flourished as Democrats. Um, And the unions have no choice but to respond back and try to win those Democrats back. Ten years ago, you could have held working. Ten years ago, you could have held a Democratic education reform meeting in a public restroom to call back to our previous segment. The point is there were very few Democrats out there who are willing to indulge in education reform if that meant breaking with the teachers union. Republicans, on the other hand, have been a part of this movement and should be owning it with a bigger megaphone. I think you're right. They can win on these kind of issues, not by themselves, but as part of a platform, and they need to be trumpeting it like Bobby Jindal has in Louisiana. You're absolutely right, because this issue is going to run away from Republicans, and we won't get any credit for it, for all the hard work that we've been doing for years and years and years, if Republicans aren't more vocal about it. Oh, I've seen that. Because the Democrats who are stepping away are going to get the credit for stepping away. Andrew Cuomo will get the credit. And leading the charge on education reform. That's right. When we've been demanding it for decades. I don't think we've owned it. Enough. You're right. uh, As we should. But it's a good thing. Ultimately, it's a good thing that Democrats are walking away from the teachers union. Ultimately, it's a good thing that Democrats are coming to the right side of this issue if they continue to. Um, But it's also something Republicans need to continue to champion. Choice. Homeschooling. Vouchers. Charter schools. Choice. It's a political winner and it's the right thing to do. Well, we we lost a good voice on that issue this week. Eric Cantor was huge on school choice, and hopefully someone else takes up that mantle in in a powerful way. Maybe Dave Bratt. Maybe Dave Bratt. Maybe Dave Bratt. All right, coming up on Kane and Cup, Will Kane has a story about going to The View. Why everybody's bisexual. And apparently everybody's bisexual. Stay tuned for that. Kane and Cup. You are listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. What's up? It's Kane and Cup here. I'm Essie Cup. And I'm Will Kane. Let me just say for the record, um, sometimes in this business, I don't know if you've been in this position, Will. I've been in the position where I have to like leave what the planned show is and go to breaking news. And someone will put in prompter something I've never seen before, of course, and you just have to go. I call that an adventure read. Uh Okay, because anything can happen. And I'm kind of like off on this adventure. This next segment is going to be a bit of an adventure because I have no idea what you're about to say. <laughs> I did not see you on The View this week. I apologize. I heard it was great. You should. But you're about to tell me and our listeners what happened and what you said. And based on your teases, I am intrigued. <laughs> yeah. So I went on The uh, View this past week, hung out with uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Jenny McCarthy, Sherry Shepard. 
And uh, during the course of the show, it came up Anna Paquin, actress, I believe she's in True Blood, um, tweeted that she's a very happy bisexual mother. Oh, I thought she was married. She is. Oh, okay. Um, To a man. Yeah. Uh, And I said, True Blood. I said the following. I said, well, listen, this. Well, here's what I said earlier when we were all talking. I said, look, I think everybody is a little bit bisexual. I think we try to make these categories too neat and clean, Mm -hmm. gay and straight, when the truth is it's probably some kind of spectrum. It doesn't mean something that you want to do that you you put that on every side. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? No, it's not. I'm happily married to a woman and. uh... Oh. Right. Uh, So, by the way, yeah, I mean, one big takeaway from my appearance on The View is that I'm apparently bisexual. Uh, well, you just said we're all a little bisexual. All right, so, so that's yeah. another reason we're talking Ergo, about it right now. <laughs> you're bisexual. 100% you just said that. Some sites like The Advocate, which is a gay magazine, wrote up that Will Cain said everyone is bisexual except for him. So it's tough yeah. in this world <laughs> being the only straight man, but I'll hold down the fort if I have to. Um, you can I see meant, why they were a little confused. What I meant, yes, I can, because what I meant was this. Not that everybody's a little bisexual, although I think that statement is not completely off base, just a little bit off base, is that I think uh, I think sexuality resides on a spectrum. As you heard me say, I don't think it's neat and clean. I don't think it's binary. I don't think there is simply gay people, and there's some other hand, there are straight people. I think it's a spectrum. Um, it doesn't mean that people don't exist on the poles, as it were. So you don't think um, that we're all bisexual. You right. think that there are some bisexuals. What I think is, it's not a third category, though. Okay, okay. Um, I think, so in some of the conversations you've had, in fact, there were these conversations backstage, some people dismiss the concept of bisexuality as an excuse to cheat, right? Or an inability to choose. And I don't even think there are three categories. I, I think that it's a spectrum. And yes, some people are completely straight. I think I am completely straight. I think some people are completely gay. But I think everything in between is a series of degrees, and some people are more or less than others in either direction. And I don't think what I'm saying is all that controversial, but when I say I think everybody is bisexual, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe you're 2% gay, S.E. I don't know. (laughs) know, Huh. um, Huh. Huh. 30? I, I don't... I don't even I don't even know how to respond. Do you um, disagree with my premise yeah. that it's not binary not binary, certainly not whatever you'd call three potential options to choose from. It's just much much broader and less defined. No. Um no, I disagree. I I've known um a number of people who have said they were bisexual and they eventually became either gay or straight. And so I think that experience being bisexual is really just kind of confused and that's um feeling out which end of the spectrum, as you would call it, they want to commit to. I don't think people live in bisexuality for a very long time. I think eventually they figure out where they're most comfortable, and that's where they go. And and that's not to say it's a choice, because I don't believe that homosexuality is a choice. Um, but that is to say that I don't know that it's clear to the individual immediately. Because there are so many competing forces. Maybe you feel like, maybe you're a guy and you feel like you're attracted to guys, but you don't really want to be. And, you know, you're, you wish, you wish your life were, were easier and you wish you were straight. And so you experiment with being straight and you experiment with being gay. And for a while you call yourself bisexual because you're not completely comfortable calling yourself gay yet. And then you figure out, no, I'm definitely gay. And then finally you own 
you own the fact that, that you're a gay man and, and think, probably live a healthier life because you've come to that realization. I don't think human behavior supports that point of view, though. I really don't. I, I think I've, I know of too many stories to violate the concept that there are, that it's binary. What stories? That someone hooked up with a member of the same sex once? Absolutely. People that have maintained heterosexual lives for most of their lives, but it turns out there are uh, behaviors, instances of clearly that's not the case. Um, well, then maybe they're gay and they're just repressing. But then then the, the, the logic would work in reverse as well. I mean, well, then what about all the portions of their life they made to heterosexual? In their behavior and their choices. Well, yeah, but the way that people you're exhibit... Forcing them, you're forcing them to one end or the other based upon which instance you're choosing to focus on. Well, I, I believe there's there's only two... I, I believe there are two poles on this. You're gay or straight. And people get confused about that. There's public pressure to pick one side or the other. I think there's an aversion uh, among some people to admit fully that they're gay. And I think there's a lot of reasons for why it might be easier and sexier and cooler to call yourself bisexual for a time rather than to admit maybe you're just straight and uninteresting or maybe you're gay. I think it's uh, much more muddy than that. And I think, uh, I mean, you know. I don't know because I don't know the science of it. So I don't know. You could be right. You could be right. You know what we should do? Get a scientist in here. Let's get some science on this. Can Pete Dominic also be an expert on this? No, I've told you before. I want to begin an Ask a Doctor segment um, because I have so many health-related questions. While you were out, I did just that. You did? I asked a doctor. You were out one one show, and I brought my friend Dr. Ryan Fuller on and asked really stupid questions. It was great. Well, that's the point, though. Um, Not unlike our conversation over bathroom etiquette, stupid questions are sometimes the ones that we're just afraid to ask. Listen, I, I wasn't the only person this week to uh, venture into the world on uh, opinions regarding bisexuality or homosexuality. Rick Perry this week at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco also um, ventured into the opinion territory on this. Listen to Rick Perry in San Francisco. People make choices in life. Um, and whether or not you... Um, whether or not you feel compelled to follow a particular lifestyle or not, you have the ability to decide not to do that. And, and I, I made the point of, of talking about alcoholism. Um, I may have, the, uh, I may have the, the genetic coding that I'm inclined to be an alcoholic, but I have the desire not to do that. And I look at the homosexual issue as the same way. Um, he's getting roundly criticized for that, by the way. Um, some suggesting it could potentially hurt his uh, presidential aspirations. Um, I'm going to tell you this. Whether or not Rick Perry is right or wrong, that is an opinion that is not unique. It's an opinion that I've heard echoed before, that uh, whether or not whatever your disposition is, genetically or other, that you can choose to embrace or decline your behavior. Um, and many are pointing out, by the way, the comparison to alcoholism, you pointed this out before, is is bad. Uh, alcoholism is a disease. Yeah, homosexuality is not a disease. Um, but the, uh, the concept of agency over your behavior, the choices you make, despite what you might um, be inclined to do, many people point that out. Well, you're, uh, you're certainly right that Rick Perry is not the only one who believes that homosexuality is a choice. A, a lot of people believe that. 
I disagree. Well, but he's walked this line. He, he hasn't necessarily just said that homosexuality is a choice. He said, I believe that even if you have a genetic disposition to it, your behavior or your agency or the choices you make after that, that is another step. That's well, what- he's making the intelligent design argument, right? The intelligent design argument um, on, on creationism says that God exists. God created the planet. But he did so using evolution. He did so using science. And Rick Perry's doing the same thing. He's saying, well, I'll allow for the science. The science is there. You might be genetically predisposed to homosexuality. But he's still saying you've got a choice to walk away. And I disagree. And the science does not back that up at all. And I don't think that comparing homosexuality to a disease like alcoholism starts you off on a good scientific foundation for that argument. And I I understand why he's getting criticized for it, even though I agree there are plenty of people who think that homosexuality is a choice. But just because he injects a little science into that argument doesn't mean that it's a consistent argument, doesn't mean that it's a persuasive argument. I guess this is what I think about what Rick Perry's statement is. It's going to be dismissed as absurdity. It's going to be dismissed as a gaffe and all that. And I actually think he brings up an interesting conversation. I think he advances. I'm going to tell you something. I think he advances the conversation. It's not about whether or not I agree with him or he's right or wrong. I don't know. I want to think about it more, right? I want to understand it more. And I actually think Rick Perry's um, course of conversation there is not a step backward, but a step forward. I mean, to the extent that he's uh, got certainty involved in it and he, he, he knows or does not know um, the, the truth or the fact or the science behind it, that's a mistake. But you don't think homosexuality is, is a disease? No, I don't think that. So why is this a productive... Because I think he brings up the concept of not whether or not homosexuality is a choice, but whether or not behavior is a choice. I don't think the behavior is wrong. I don't condemn it, right? Mm -hmm. I don't pass moral judgment on it. But I think it's interesting to understand agency, to understand choice in people's lives, right? And ultimately, for those that consider homosexuality wrong um, from a religious perspective or for whatever perspective, that's where they're going to arrive. Right. Even if it's not a, even if it is mm-hmm. uh, even if homosexuality is not a choice, they're going to say the behavior is a choice. You're right. That's what people. Yes, that is a common argument. Right. I, I, I don't know that it. I don't know that it's an argument that hasn't already happened, a, a debate that hasn't already happened. And I think what's novel about Rick Perry's interpretation, again, is putting that sort of I'll allow for the science. Mm-hmm. I'll allow that it's science's fault that you're gay. But you don't have to act gay is essentially what he's saying. You don't have to act on that science. I think that's preposterous. How can you choose who you are attracted to, who you fall in love with? What, you're supposed to remain celibate? You're supposed to live a lie? You're supposed to get married to someone you're not attracted to or don't, or, 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 or don't love? I mean, is that what he's suggesting? Because that's the, the, the conclusion of that. It'll be interesting to find out, by the way, what the various presidential candidates on the Republican ticket's position is on gay marriage Yeah, in because it's evolved so, so much. Fast. It's going so fast. Just from 2012, it's evolved. Right. Um, let's take a quick break. we got one more segment to hang out with you. Uh, Mediate, a, a website dedicated to covering pundits, Us. I guess, political Us. news, yeah. put out uh, a list of the biggest bros in news media. Oh my God, that's like made for us. You think we're going to leave that alone when we no. come back on Kane and Cup? You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
You're listening to Kane and Cup. Welcome back. I'm Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. Mediaite, a website dedicated to covering and making political pundits and news personalities bigger narcissists than they already are. Mm-hmm. Covers every little utterance that comes out of our mouths, mocks us, celebrates us, whatever. Uh, put out a list of the biggest bros in cable news. Fairly decent list. I quizzed Essie Cup on this list yesterday, and now I think we need to share it with you. Do you agree really with most of this list? Yeah, it, the the list is way too short because I there are a lot of bros in this business, and they don't include some pretty big bros. But the people that they have on there, I would agree, are all bros. No, I disagree. There are some mistakes made in the list, so let's oh, begin to reveal it. Let's begin to reveal it, and we'll, we'll comment as we go. Number six on the list, which they termed a finance bro, Eric Bowling. 100%. 120%. Of the five in Fox Business. He might be one of the broiest guys on television. I think it's fair to say Eric is a bro. Yeah, and and I know Eric. I like Eric. He's a great guy. He's a bro, right? That's a dude. He works out. He talks about finance. He wears, you know, the French cuff shirts, American flag pin. People call him coach. Eric Bowling's a bro. Number five on Mediaite's list, Geraldo. Oh, yeah, you're right. I disagree. Yeah, Not is, a bro. This is what I was going to say. Not a bro. Not a bro. I don't know in what sense of the word bro they they think of Geraldo. Right. I mean, in that he's kind of like self-involved, you know, proud of himself kind of guy, um, I guess. But he's not a bro. Number four on their list, Chris Cuomo of CNN. 100%. <laughs> Cuomo's great. Cuomo's a bro. Cuomo's I like a bro. Cuomo. He is a bro. Yeah. Uh, number three on the list... Oh, yeah, I forgot for a moment. Mm. Brian Kilmeade of Fox and Friends. Also great, fun guy, sports guy. He's a bro. He's a bro. He's 100% a bro as well. I think they really nailed it. This is Andrew Carrill, the writer at Mediaite.com. Uh, I think he really nailed it with his top two. Number two on your list of biggest bros in news and cable punditry. From the O'Reilly Factor on Fox News, Jesse Waters. Yeah, I, I you mean... You didn't see it at first. I, every picture they have of Jesse, he's got his collar popped. That's, every that's bro-y. one, he has a pastel polo shirt on with his collar popped. That's pretty bro. That's pretty bro. And number one on the list of cable news bros from MSNBC, Luke Russert. Who I, I nicknamed Brosert. He's that big a bro, I've nicknamed him Brosert. There is no bigger bro in cable news than Luke Then He's a bro. Russert. Thanks for hanging out with us this morning on Kane and Cup. Chris Salcedo is coming up next. We'll see you again next week. Looking forward to it. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.